You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Every article of clothing, every accessory worn by a member of the military must conform to the regulation, but there are gaps in compliant clothing available for service members, particularly women. While I was on active duty, finding a purse that fell under military regulations was more than difficult. It was impossible. The purse I had found was technically non-compliant, but every purse I had found had one thing that made it so it did not meet standards. Luckily, Wilco Life understood this need and created an online boutique of minimalist style bag and accessories that meet military regulations. And even if you are not looking for a military regulations purse or bag, you should check out Wilco Life since they also offer and carry product from veteran-owned companies that don't meet military regulations. Go to wilcosupplyco.com, use the code airmentomom, and save 15%. That's wilcosupplyco.com with the code airman, the number two, mom, to save 15%. Now, let's get back to the show. My guest today is Tammy Bartlett. She served in the Coast Guard for eight years as an operations specialist aboard the USCGC Chase. Traveling halfway around the world twice was the last thing Tammy thought would happen. However, she would soon find herself on patrols in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on her way to Alaska, Thailand, or the Persian Gulf. During Tammy's time on the Cutter Chase, she participated in numerous tactical operations such as cooperation of float readiness and training and military interdiction operations. The Coast Guard Meritorious Unit Commendation Award from Vice Admiral Carr, Distinguished Coast Guard Battle E Ribbon, Coast Guard Special Operation, and Armed Forces Expeditionary medal were only a few of the medals and ribbons she earned while aboard Chase. I'm really excited to hear more about your experience in the Coast Guard. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Amanda. How are you? I'm great. The first question I'm going to ask is why did you decide to join the Coast Guard? So I grew up in a very rural area, Pennsylvania, and I knew beyond high school I wanted to get out and see the world. I did have a few members in my family who served in all the armed forces except for the Coast Guard. And I, my family and I spent our summers down at the Delaware Shore. I got some experience of seeing the Coast Guard at the Indian River Inlet Small Boat Station and also the this was the mid-90s, so everyone was watching Baywatch. <laughs> and I, I wanted money for college, and I knew if I joined the Coast Guard, I would also be eligible for other benefits once I was finished with service. That's why I joined the Coast Guard. So money for college and to see the world. Well, initially when I thought I would stay stateside joining the Coast Guard. Okay. Um, but as you mentioned, I soon found myself halfway around the world. <laughs> so more it was to see the country and not the world, but then the military decided to change up everything. Yeah, and plus uh, staying stateside was sort of the selling point for my mom. <laughs> she didn't know that once you sign up, it doesn't matter what you what you agree to. So is there a reason that you picked Coast Guard? Was it because you would get to stay stateside or just because of those memories as you're in your childhood? The memories in my childhood and my senior year 
I still had not figured out, I still haven't figured out if I was going to college or not and how I was going to pay for it if I was. And I came across a Coast Guard ad in a college magazine. One of those magazines that teach you, gives you tips on how to study for the SATs, how to pick the perfect college and things of that nature. And I was looking at the ad and it was talking about just like service and helping others. And I felt that that really spoke to me and really matched with who I am. So I reached out to the recruiters in here in Pennsylvania. They were in Harrisburg, which from my hometown is a good two hour drive. But they drove out to my parents' house and sat down one afternoon with us and explained to them what the Coast Guard was and what I was doing in the service, showed a little video. Because of my interest, they also showed, the recruiters showed interest into uh, being at recruiting days at my high school. So it was interesting seeing them also up there with the other four services. That's really cool. So you said he told you a little bit about what the Coast Guard would be like. Was your experience close to what he said or was it totally different? It was totally different. When he and I had spoken and we were, I took my ASPAB and I did well in my ASPABs to where I got a guaranteed geological area. And I choose District 5, which was Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia. So I knew my, at least my first duty station outside of boot camp would be fairly close. Also, I had intentions of becoming a corpsman in the Coast Guard. But soon within my first year of me, myself in the service, uh, that plan changed. Unlike the other services where you go through boot camp and then you go to your training advancement school and then you go out into the real world. In the Coast Guard, you go through boot camp and then you go out in the real world and you either sign up and wait for your schooling or you may um, study your trade on site. Well, after joining, after going through boot camp, my first duty station was Integrated Sport Support Command, Portsmouth, Virginia. And I was at a land base because there were very few non-rate female billets within that district. And the Coast Guard had guaranteed me that district. So I ended up being at the ISC and in the Morale, Welfare, and Recreation Department, which meant right out of boot camp, I handed out basketballs to dependents who came to the gym. I also found out that Corman School was a three-year wait. I was not going to spend three years <laughs> handing out basketballs or cleaning up gum on the basketball floor. <laughs> Within my six-month evaluation with my chief, uh, I explained to him that this is not where I saw my Coast Guard career. <laughs> and he told me of a program up in Yorktown, Virginia, that if I would say yes and sign myself up for it, I'd be gone within two months, and I'd be on a cutter within the next three months. And the rate itself was underway. And at that time, the Coast Guard rate was named Raiderman. So basically, we worked on the radars, the radios, any type of tactical, search and rescue tactical operations, uh, anything you would find in a combat information center. When you say cutter, I know that's a type of ship. Can you talk about like what size ship that is and like how many people? And So when I, once I went through my training at Yorktown, I was stationed aboard the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Chase, which is a high endurance cutter. Uh, that fleet, very few are left in service. I think there's either one or two still in active service. The others either have been sold or scrapped. The high endurance cutter is the Coast Guard's second large, or was the Coast Guard's second largest vessels they had. Polar Star and Polar Sea being the first two. Uh, they're 378 feet long, usually hold a crew of 180. In the time I was on the cutter, which was late 90s, we had about 40 females, and I'd have to say at least four of them were actually women officers. That seems like a fairly good amount of females, because it was 40 out of like 180. 80. So not a lot, but not not zero. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in my combat information center, in along with the other Raidermans, and we were under the operations department, so the other Raidermans, there was at least two females, including myself, at one point in time. So there was one woman Coast Guard Raiderman when I got 
to the ship. So her and I served together for quite a while in the same shop. And then when she left, another one had showed up. So there was at least two of us in the shop at once. So even though there were 40 females, there were lots of different jobs. And so you were lucky to have another female that worked directly with you. I guess thinking more about it, when I think of Coast Guard, obviously you think of patrolling like the America's borders, but then thinking you went to Thailand and the Persian Gulf. How did your guys' mission, is it always that way or did it change because of what was going on at the time or? So our carrot mission, like you um, explained earlier, the cooperation of float readiness, that was involvement with the Thailand Navy and actually the U.S. Navy. The three entities trained aside of each other for those few months that we were there. So more or less, we were showing them, the Coast Guard was showing the Thai Navy more of a tactical law enforcement training to where the Navy showed them more of like a defense type training. The military interdiction operations we did over in the Persian Gulf was similar to what the Navy was performing. We would patrol the northern, northern part of the Gulf, ensuring that UN sanctions supplies that were being delivered north through the river were not coming back south through the river and then resold throughout the Gulf for a profit. We would do a lot of boardings up in the northern part and any vessels found in violation, we would hand them off to the Navy and then the Navy would take care of them afterwards. And then we'd go right back up to and patrol and continue our boardings. So was that in support of the Navy's mission? Do they always use the Coast Guard or did they need them just because there was so much demand? So we were the second Coast Guard cutter to go over for that mission. There was a one previous, the same size that had previous been there the year before. Did your mom have anything to say when she found out where you were going? <laughs> she wasn't very happy because <laughs> like I mentioned that the staying stateside was sort of the selling point for her because right. I was under 18 uh, when I initially signed up um, but I was only like 18 a month when I got into boot camp. <laughs> so it was sort of the selling point. She appreciated the gifts <laughs> and, and the stories I would come back with. Uh, they were a really close group knit of women that women friends that I had aboard ship and one of our thing was as soon as we pull in somewhere for liberty we would go try to do a tour if the tour would take us to like religious buildings or palaces or certain museums or something like that we always tried to engulf ourselves into the culture and, and get an experience besides having the normal liberty relaxing kind of experience that's really cool. Do you have any interesting stories that you want to share from that experience? Like, or anywhere that you got to go that you just won't ever forget? <laughs> I probably won't ever forget riding camels in the UAE. Um, we went on a tour that took us like four-wheeling on these Jeeps through the sand dunes. And then there was like a little camp set up in the middle of nowhere. And we had an opportunity to ride some camels around. <laughs> and then uh, we had a, a traditional feast and there were some ladies who were doing henya designs so all us women on board ship got henya designs done on hands and yeah just having that experience and i probably will never ride a camel again but <laughs> yeah that's really cool that you got to do that and that you guys took advantage of being somewhere that you probably won't ever go again when we pulled into kuwait city there we restricted from the pier to the military base unless you went on this one tour and the tour took us to a Kuwaiti POW Museum, where we actually got to meet some of the survivors from the interdictions in the early 90s in Kuwait City, which is hearing their stories and hearing them speak of how they survived while all this torment was going around them was was quite amazing. That sounds really cool. Yeah, that's part of why I'm sharing our stories is because if you <laughs> if you don't know a female veteran, you don't 
usually know, and even if you do, a lot of us don't talk about our military experience. What was it like to be on a ship for long periods of time? Well, back when I was in, (laughs) it's not like it is today, where we have that communication of cell phones and emails, being able to Skype and Facebook. Being on board ship in the mid-90s, we were still using Marsgrams if we were underway to communicate. So it's sort of like a a Morse code kind of uh, situation to where you could send almost like telegrams back and forth, but you would always have to be close enough to shore to receive that message back and forth. So often it didn't happen too frequently. We were just starting emails on our Persian Gulf trip, but yet again, like the satellite had to be just in the right position to receive transmissions. On a three-month patrol or a four-month patrol, I would have to say it'd be about a week to two weeks that we'd be underway without having to pull into somewhere. And underway time was filled with your duty watches, which often rotated. Being in the combat information center, our duty rotation rotated. So you could be standing like the four to eights in the morning, and then your next shift might be like the 16 to 200s um, in the evening. But in between there, every afternoon, we'd either do general quarters, which could be an exercise from a man overboard to a fire on board ship to any type of tactical, like almost defensive type of uh, an event. So you guys were busy. Yeah, we were, we were busy and then um, stick flight ops in between there because we would have a helicopter crew attached to us for a patrol, usually an H-865 Dolphin and uh, two pilot and usually four crewmen would come aboard with us, one of them a survival swimmer. And, you know, our downtime that we did have in the evenings were usually watching videos in the lounge and on weekends weekends we would have divine services on Sunday. Like Sunday would be a restful day. We wouldn't have any um, general quarters or anything like that or general emergency. So we'd have divine services in the morning if you wanted to attend. And then Sunday afternoon, we would have Seal Beach. So it gave the opportunity, if we were having fight ops, <laughs> gave you the opportunity to get a suntan on the Steel Beach, which was just outside our flight, our, ha- our hangar deck. Yeah. That's kind of how it was when we were deployed. We were like busy, busy, busy working. And then on Sundays was kind of like our down day. It wasn't really really a lot to do. And they would often try to integrate fun with work. If we were not in the Bering Sea, I and mean, if we were in warmer waters, all hands would go out and pretty much like help scrub the sea salt off the ship. So it gave you opportunity to be in like tank top and shorts and just help wash down the ship. So when you pulled back into port, you weren't chasing too much rust. And the swim calls. I mean, the swim calls are pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of cool experiences. I did. And I shared them with some memorable friends. Did you face any struggles while being in the service? As I mentioned earlier, I think I feel my only struggle I faced when in the military service was that first duty station I had, only because at that time that district lacked the non-rate female billet in that area, pretty much just stuck me in a place. And I felt like I was at a disadvantage because I was at a land unit my first you know, right out of boot camp. So when I went to A school, you know, some of those people who I went to A school with, they either just came from a small boat station or a small boat somewhere or a small ship. Yeah. To where I came from working in the gym. (laughs) And I felt almost penalized that I had done so well on my ASVABs. Right. That makes sense. Well, the military, you get your ASVAB and then you connect with like a job in the other services. And so it's kind of not backwards, but just a different way of doing it the way the Coast Guard does it. If you get a job and it's really desirable, sometimes you can wait months and months after saying you want to join before you actually enlist and go to boot camp. And it sounds like with the Coast Guard, you kind of just went and then you did the waiting while you were already on active duty. Yes. 
you either considered like a deck department or a fireman, which would be under the engineer department. And the rated jobs, was that because of the law that used to be in place that prevented women to being in combat roles? Or why were there so many less jobs for women? Well, there in District 5, again, this is mid-90s. A lot has changed since then. Right. Um, but that at that time, there were not many large or even like the 110, 180 cutters that had very many female birthing. And if they did, it was mostly for female officers. There in Portsmouth, Virginia, there were and there are six 270 foot cutters, which we call the medium endurance. And in the mid 90s, there were two of the six were all male crew. They were still holding on to the all male crew for those two ships. I was very limited in that district. Just holding on to the way that things had always been done. Not the combat rules, but in a different way, just a different... Because I feel like the women weren't allowed in combat for a long time just because that's the way it had always been and not because not because they weren't out on the front lines anyways. Yeah, and the Coast Guard, it seemed like it was a birthing issue, but throughout the years, they have gotten past that. Is there anything else from your time in the Coast Guard that you wanted to talk about? Well, my last four years in the Coast Guard, I spent at the Vessel Traffic Service in Houston Galveston and there at the VTS I was considered a watch control for Houston traffic so the Houston ship channel is 52 miles and the second has the second dangerous intersection in the world so we were pretty much like air traffic controllers for the ship channel so certain tows and ships would have to check in with us throughout their travels through the ship channel and we pretty much give them a traffic advisory of the vessel traffic they would see in between their next two checkpoints so the, this job you were not traveling out at you were not at sea you were staying where you were and you were kind of like an aircraft controller but for the ocean so the ships didn't run into each other yes galveston bay which is the part of the houston ship channel is very shallow and and the channel itself gets dredged often to maintain the depth so those deep carriers and oil tankers can come up through up into Houston. So once those ships and tows would leave the buoy line, they could be aground almost instantaneously. So by providing them a traffic advisory of who they meet within the next two checkpoints gives them ample amount of time to make communications with that other vessel. So it wasn't really for like running into each other. It was for, for like hitting the bottom and getting stuck or stuff like that. Right. So you were correct in saying that I didn't travel often when I was there at the VTS. Although quarterly, I was required to go on those vessels and travel up the ship channel. So I get an idea of what those pilot and mariners are looking at versus what I can see with the radar and the cameras. That seems like a really logical thing that they would do <laughs> because sitting in the, you can only imagine it from your desk, but, and as things change. So that's like, that's really good that they got you out so that you could see what you were actually directing. And being at the land base for those four years also gave me opportunity to go temporary attached to other units. So I had the opportunity to spend a summer on the sail ship Eagle out of New London, Connecticut, and train the Coast Guard cadets for a summer on combat information operations. So that's cool. You got to do a lot of different things while doing that job. Yeah. Sounds really interesting. And then let's talk a little bit about why you left the military or how you left the military. There at the Vassal Traffic Service, my duty shifts were three days on, three days off. So I had a lot of time to myself, and I should have been more disciplined and, and went back to school <laughs> at that time. But my off hours, I would go and volunteer. So I was volunteering at a hospital for a while. I would volunteer in the gift shop or in the emergency room, helping 
flip the rooms. And um, then I got involved with a horse ranch that took in abused and neglected horses. In 2001, I was there at the horse ranch and I was involved in a serious accident, um, pretty much career ending. I suffered a compound fracture of the tibia. I broke my hand, had a concussion, a lot of dental damage. So I knew at that point I would be getting out of the Coast Guard. I pretty much ended my career. So in 2003, as my contract was finishing and I was going through my final physical through TAPS, uh, it was brought to my attention that I should get a medical board before I get out of the Coast Guard. So for the next eight months, I extended my contract until my medical board was completed. So I was found 30% service connected, and then I went home. I think it's interesting that you mentioned, partly because I know a little bit about what you're doing today, but how you were volunteering then, and now you're volunteering. And so it's really cool to see that your heart of like helping other people has always been a part of who you are, which I guess makes sense. But it's just to have it at such a young age to already be out there serving the community. Unfortunately, this accident happened and you had to get out of the military. But what you're doing now to continue the mission of the military is just as admirable. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You were medically discharged in 2003. And then you, what did you do after you got out of the military? So 2003, I moved back home to Pennsylvania and thought I would settle down and have a family. I used, at that time, my Montgomery GI Bill to go through a trade school, and I became a pharmacy technician. So I still wanted to incorporate my love for the medical field into now my my second career. And I was a pharmacy technician for about 10 years. I did get married in between there, although I did not self-identify as a veteran. I did receive my medical benefits through the VA. I was receiving disability compensation, but that's as far as I went. Also, back at that time, there weren't as many VSOs as there are now. So I feel that that's maybe another reason I might have disconnected sort of unplugged from the veteran realm. And it wasn't until 2013 that I had another cousin commit suicide that I sort of like hit my mental rock bottom and sought mental health help in the VA. So uh, through that help, I met a wonderful social worker who explained to me that, you know, I do have vocational rehabilitation benefit and I should go back to school. (laughs) I'm smart enough to go back to school and that she would support me on my way. And I, I give a lot of credit to her for helping me change my life around. That's a really cool story. I don't think it's uncommon. When I left the military, I was very anti any veteran thing. I would stand up at various ceremonies, but I was not interested in getting involved in anything related to military post functions. I think that's, I've heard that before. And I, for me, I thought it was really weird how quickly I was like, I'm done with the military. I'm done. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I don't want to be a part of it. And now like, I'm slowly kind of going back to it. And I, and I feel if I may have had that, that touchback, if I may have had that hand, you know, that direct hand that helped me during my transition, things that might've changed, I might've felt I was good enough to go to a four-year college right after the service instead of just to a trade school. So you were able to go back to school and get your degree, right? Yes. So in uh, 2017, I finished my bachelor's of science in public health from Temple University in Philadelphia. And now I'm almost done with my master's in public health at George Washington University in DC. Congrats. That's so awesome. Thanks. (laughs) 
I can't believe it's happening. <laughs> so while you were doing all your schooling stuff, what else have you been doing? Because I know that you've been doing volunteer stuff and getting back into the veteran side of things. Yeah, so I, while at Temple University, I got involved with the student veteran organization on campus and Temple Veteran Association is pretty amazing. I was vice president of the organization in 2016. And I was part of the task force that got the Home Depot SBA grant to where we had put together a veteran center there on campus. So the veterans had our own little space. We had a space to talk to, could be university staff about benefits. We could bring someone in from the VA to talk about maybe medical benefits. It also gave us a small area to do any type of interviews networking opportunities, or just to chill out and get away from the library. And in November of 2016, we had Colin Powell come and do our ribbon cutting for there. And Admiral Lynch, he was there too. So being involved with SBA got me involved in the veteran realm in the Philadelphia area, which connected me to groups like the Travis Manion Foundation. Um, I'm really big into Team River Runner, which is a kayaking organization that helps get veterans butts and boats. Uh, been with them for almost four years. I do some white water <laughs> with them, but their whole thing is like anyone can get out on a kayak, no matter what your disability or ability is. And being involved in TRR and seeing how far I've gone with them really lit my competitive spirit and gave me that fire to compete in the Valor Games these past two years in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, while in Raleigh at these uh, Valor Games, I meddled in kayaking, powerlifting, and rowing. I did a Mission Continues Fellowship at Student Veterans of America the summer of 2017, which was the Forever GI Bill time. And I also saw that you were part of Miss Veteran America. <laughs> yes. So last year, I was a semifinalist for Miss Veteran America. And a fellow contestant from a two years ago, Miss Erica Webster, her and I met at a Philadelphia event uh, at a baseball game, and we were talking about how we can um, network and get more sponsorship for my, my Miss Vendor America campaign. And she owns a CrossFit, a women's CrossFit in the King of Prussia area. So what we did is we did a CrossFit event in front of the steps there at the Art Museum in Philadelphia where the Rocky statue is. And her dad with the Wooded Warrior Riders and him and his buddies with motorcycles all showed up there that morning, put flags up along the steps, and people paid to go participate in the CrossFit event. I raised almost $800 that day. I'm on a board of the Delaware County Veteran Memorial Association. So outside of Philadelphia and Delaware County, there's a large veteran memorial. Beautiful if you ever get a chance to come see it. We bring grade school students in at different times of their education, and they get a different type of military knowledge when they come to the memorial. So like the very first time they come, they'll just get a description of each of the pillars, which represents each of the wars. And as they get older, they get a more in-depth education of the memorial. That sounds really cool. So they can come back and learn more and more about it. Yes. And the veterans in their community. And, and lastly, I'm involved with uh, Women's Empowerment and Thriving, Women Veterans Empowerment and Thriving here in the Lehigh Valley, which is a women's veteran writing group that these ladies are rock stars. <laughs> and it, it's sort of been like my therapy. I, I, I feel I've evolved. My friends even say my academic writing has evolved since I've been involved in this group. So we meet about every other week. Unfortunately, I don't get to see them every other week. But when, when they meet, we do about two 15-minute word vomits just on a piece of paper. You can write what you want. 
but Jenny Pekinowski does give us some ideas. And then if you feel comfortable enough, uh, we go around the room and read what we wrote and we give each other some positive feedback. So not only do you get, get to drain what's in your brain onto a piece of paper, but then you also get to read it out loud and experience it and have others experience it. But then as the audience, you're learning how to be an active listener and provide that positive feedback to that women veteran who just read. I'm also a Veteran and Global Leadership Fellow this year, and most recently, um, the VFW SVA Legislation Fellowship. Yes, it's great. I'm so excited for everything that you're doing, and I'll put links to all the different organizations if you want to learn more in the show notes so that people can find out if they're a veteran, how to get more involved, or even if they're not a veteran but want to support these veteran organizations, they can learn more about them. I have one last question for you. What would you tell girls who are considering joining the military? So I would tell girls to be prepared to serve unselfishly. That the military is a 24-7, 365 type of job and that you're upheld to a higher standard from even when you're active duty serving, when you're on leave or liberty. And I feel you have to search yourself deeply if you're able to serve that way. Not everyone can, not everyone does, but I feel to do the military due diligence that you would have to consider serving in that direction. I think that's really good advice. Because like you said, when you initially were joining, what the recruiter told you wasn't exactly what happened. And I feel like what I was told when I joined the Air Force wasn't exactly what happened. So I think that you have to know that when you sign up, it is, you have to give your all and do what the military and your country ask for you. Thank you so much for your time. I really loved learning more about Post Guard and all the different organizations that you're working with and have worked with in the past. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so glad we had the opportunity to talk. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get Women of the Military podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show onto all the apps people like to listen to? How much will it cost to get started? And how will I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. So, if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go for it. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.